Hello and welcome to Hometown Paranormal, where everything is fake and nothing is real, but every hometown gets its own paranormal story. My name is Kristen Kozlowski and I'm the creator of this podcast. For every episode, I will make up a strange paranormal story set in an actual place and tell it to you. Before I start with my story today, I want to take a quick moment to apologize, sincerely apologize, for not uploading a new episode for the holiday season. I tried really hard to make that happen for you guys, but unfortunately, my real life got in the way, as real lives tend to do. But I'm back. Thank you for your patience. I got a lot of messages asking about when the podcast would start up again, and I'm happy to be back with you today on Groundhog's Day. I hope wherever you are on the map, you're staying warm and riding out the last few weeks of winter, as I am. So as always, thank you for tuning in and for putting Hometown Paranormal on the map. Today's episode is The Empty Lot of Gorham, Maine. Leslie Bishop was the one who suggested they go to the empty lot two blocks over from where they lived in a red brick house in Gorham, Maine. Ever since her cousins, Robbie and Isaac, had arrived from Tampa to spend the week at the Bishop's house during summer break, Leslie had assumed the position of event planner. At 14, Leslie was the oldest of the cousins. Then came Robbie, then Isaac, and finally, Leslie's twin brothers, Reed and Jared, who were not quite 11, although they often said that they were. As the oldest, Leslie decided what movie they would see on Monday afternoon and which restaurant they would eat dinner at on Tuesday night. She decided on which Nintendo Switch games they'd play and who would be paired together for Capture the Flag. But most of all, Leslie decided on the sleeping arrangements. And deciding sleeping arrangements in the Bishop house wasn't easy because everyone in the Bishop family knew that the Bishop house was haunted. Over the years, Reed and Jared had been woken in the middle of the night to someone pulling a blanket over them that had been kicked away in their sleep. And Leslie often heard voices of a man and a woman talking in the kitchen when she was home alone after school. Even Robbie and Isaac, who only stayed in the Bishop house for one week every summer, had experienced the cold spots that traveled through the house and the sound of dresser doors opening and closing by themselves in empty rooms. Lights flickered on and off at all times of the day and night, and the radio popped on at odd intervals, always playing classical music despite being tuned to other stations. And although the bishops didn't love living in a haunted house, they didn't necessarily mind it. Whatever ghost shared space with them didn't seem harmful. Of course, hearing the voices of people they couldn't see, 
and watching or hearing objects move when no one was near them scared the daylights out of the kids. But the ghosts never seemed to bother them specifically and sometimes even seemed to care for them. It was as if the ghost was simply sharing space with the Bishop family, as if both the ghost and the family were occupying the house at the same time, and for the most part, each went about their own business. But on rare occasions, they would bump into each other. Of course, the thought of bumping into a ghost, even a benign one, scared the wits out of Robbie and Isaac, who were used to living in an unhaunted house, and who didn't want to sleep alone while they visited their cousins every summer. And so, Leslie made arrangements for all of the kids to sleep in sleeping bags on the floor of the living room, so that hopefully no one would ever be alone with a ghost. And for the most part, Leslie's plan had paid off. The cousins barely encountered the ghost at all their whole week at the Bishop House. But now it was Saturday. It was Robbie and Isaac's last night and Gorham. Their parents had gone for the evening. Dinner and some lame concert is what Leslie heard them say as they walked out the door. Leslie was left in charge of setting up board games for the kids to play and keeping rough housing to a minimum and dishing out dinner from the crock pot on the kitchen counter. But Leslie thought that board games on Robbie and Isaac's last night would mean only one thing, that the bishops were B-O-R-I-N-G, boring. And Leslie didn't want anyone to think that she was boring. Not ever. So Leslie devised a new plan, a better plan. Leslie pushed aside the chicken that simmered in the crock pot all evening and ordered a pizza, which she let everyone eat without using plates. And she allowed everyone to drink as much Coke as they wanted while they wrestled each other in the living room. But soon, everyone's sugar rush took hold and they demanded to go outside where they could run around. But it was dark outside. What could they do in the dark? That's when Leslie thought of a new plan, a great plan. Leslie ordered everyone to grab a flashlight and meet her on the front porch. The boys scattered like ants, each rushing off to find a flashlight. They returned with three flashlights for the five of them to share, but that was enough for Leslie. Leslie ushered everyone onto the front porch, slamming the front door closed behind them. Then she flipped on her flashlight and shined the beam under her chin so that her face lit up with creepy shadows. Follow me, she said in her creepiest voice. Leslie turned and marched off the porch. Her cousins and brothers followed. Whatever Leslie planned, they knew it'd be great. Together, the five kids wove down the street and over two blocks to the empty lot in the corner of the neighborhood. The lot was about a half acre of empty space. No house, no garage, just a few large pine trees arranged in a circle in the back of the lot. And that's where Leslie headed, to the trees. 
Once the group got to the circle of pine trees, Leslie started a game of flashlight tag where everyone turned off their flashlights except for one person. The person who was it closed their eyes, counted to 10, and then used the light from their flashlight to tag the others. With all the open space to run around, coupled with the circle of trees for when the kids needed a place to hide, the kids had a great time playing flashlight tag. They were having so much fun, in fact, that they weren't paying attention to how late it was getting until someone from one of the houses that bordered the empty lot yelled out of their open window for the kids to stop making all that noise and go home already. With that, the kids realized that they had stayed later than they probably should have, and they started to run home, hoping to beat their parents there. Moving as one big group, the kids ran from the circle of pine trees at the back of the empty lot. But when they got to the edge of the property, something happened. Just as they reached the place where the overgrown grass lined the street, the three flashlights that the kids carried flickered briefly before going out. And when the flashlights suddenly flicked back on, the kids found themselves back at the circle of pine trees. Startled, the kids looked at each other. What had happened? Nobody knew. But time was ticking, and they really needed to get home if they didn't want their parents to know they'd been gone. So, all together, the group started out again. This time, when the group got to the edge of the empty lot, the three flashlights flickered briefly and then turned off. When the flashlights flicked back on, all five kids were back at the circle of pine trees in the back of the lot. Again. This time, Jared, one of the youngest twins, started crying. What was going on? How could the kids have been almost at the street one minute and then back at the circle of trees at the rear of the lot the next. Reed yelled at his brother, told him to stop crying. But Reed looked just as scared as his twin. Now all the kids looked at Leslie. But Leslie didn't say anything. She had no answers for them. She didn't know what was happening any more than they did. But she was the oldest, the planner, the protector, and coming to the empty lot had been her idea. Give me a flashlight, Leslie said, holding out her hand. Robbie, the second oldest, passed his flashlight to Leslie. Stay here, Leslie told them firmly. Slowly, carefully, she walked across the empty lot. Just before she reached the street, she stopped. Cautiously, Leslie lifted her hand into the air. She thrust it outward so that her hand hovered above the street while her feet stayed on the grass of the empty lot. Leslie didn't feel anything. And she didn't immediately get transported to the back of the lot. She lowered her hand to her side, 
The first two times the kids had tried to get home, they'd been running. Maybe they needed to jump? Maybe jumping from the empty lot into the street was what they needed to do to get out of here, Leslie thought. Of course, she was only guessing. Leslie had no idea if jumping would work. But she did know that running together wouldn't work. And she knew that they couldn't just stay at the empty lot forever. So Leslie was going to give it a shot. Taking a deep breath, Leslie jumped from the grass. And she landed safely on the street. From the back of the lot, the other kids saw and came running. Robbie got to the edge of the lot first, and he stopped and held his arms to keep the other kids from running into the street and being transported back to the circle of pine trees. However, that was happening. Everyone stopped in a line along the edge of the lot. You'll have to jump, Leslie said. And then, because she wasn't exactly sure why she'd gotten through when none of them had before, she added, one at a time. The four remaining kids looked at each other. Leslie made it through, Robbie said to the younger kids, whose eyes were wide with fear. But just in case, I'll go next, so you can see that there's nothing to worry about. The other kids nodded and stepped back, giving Robbie room to jump. Robbie crouched down as if he were attempting a huge feat, even though he only needed to jump one foot. Counting under his breath, one, two, three, Robbie swung his arms and jumped off of the grass and landed safely on the blacktop street. The three younger boys cheered as if Robbie had accomplished something huge. Had anyone been paying attention, the group would have looked really bizarre, but nobody was watching them at all. Next up was Isaac, and then Jared, who had stopped crying. Both boys made it safely to the street without being propelled back to the circle of pine trees. Reed was the last one to go. By the time they got to him, they'd almost forgotten why they were being so careful. But just like the rest of them, Reed lined the toe of his sneakers against the edge of the empty lot. Taking his cue from Robbie, Reed swung his arms really wide and jumped towards the street. Reed's body lifted into the air but as he sailed over the grass of the empty lot, he was suddenly yanked back onto the grass, hitting the ground with a deep thud. Reed let out a screech. Now the younger kids were really scared because to them, it looked like something took a hold of Reese's ankle and pulled him backwards, back onto the empty lot. Except there was nobody around. The kids were alone. Desperate to help her little brother, Leslie ran back onto the empty lot. She scooped Reed into her arms and rushed with him back towards the street. To her surprise, nothing stopped them. The others stepped away from Leslie and Reed. 
They were surprised too. But as soon as they realized that all five of them were finally free from the empty lot, they took off running down the street. At the end of the block, the kids slowed to catch their breath. Leslie was still carrying Reed, who was sobbing against her shoulder as she ran. When they stopped, Leslie sat Reed down and tried to calm him. But he wasn't crying because he was afraid. He kept grabbing at his ankle while he cried. It was the same ankle that looked like something had pulled it when Reed tried to jump out of the lot. It hurts. It hurts, Reed finally said between sobs. Leslie gently pulled Reed's sock down below his ankle and immediately gasped. All the way around his leg was a large red mark. Leslie leaned in to look at the mark. The skin was red and beginning to blister at the edges. It looked like he'd been burned. And most surprising of all, the burn was in the shape of a hand. The kids looked at each other while Leslie scooped Reed back up and tried to comfort him. We have to get home, Leslie said, thinking about how she would tell her folks about Reed's ankle. One thing Leslie was sure about, she didn't know how to treat a burn. They all started walking towards the bishop's house, moving as quickly as they could without breaking into a run again. But as the kids rounded the corner of their block, they noticed something else. In the middle of the block, right over the spot where the bishop's house stood, was a large puff of thick black smoke. In the distance, they could hear sirens blaring. The kids seemed to notice the rising smoke all at once because the whole group took off running towards the house at the same time. The kids reached the house just as a fire truck roared down the street. Stunned, the kids stood in front of their house, which had large flames rising out of the windows. And large flames rose out of the front door, which stood wide open. The firefighters immediately hooked up a hose and began fighting the flames. The kids' folks pulled up to the house a minute later. They jumped out of the car and raced towards the kids, hugging them. What happened? Leslie's dad finally asked as they stood in the street watching the firemen work. Leslie shrugged. She honestly didn't know. She told her folks about their trip to the empty lot preferring to get into trouble for going somewhere they shouldn't have than getting into trouble for burning down their house. We would have been back sooner, Leslie said, but we had trouble. She stopped suddenly. She was just realizing that if they had left the empty lot when they intended to, they might have been inside the house when the fire started. Trouble? Leslie's dad said. What kind of trouble? 
Leslie had hesitated. How could she describe what happened? How could she explain that every time they tried to leave the empty lot to go back home, something pulled them back in? How could she explain that even when they finally got out of the lot, something had still tried to pull them back? Something strong enough to grab onto Reed's ankle? Something hot enough to burn him? As with all stories, Leslie started at the beginning and explained it all to her dad. The bishop's house was almost unrecognizable when the fire finished with it. It had been reduced to a few charred two-by-fours rising up from the concrete slab, which also suffered intense scorch marks. The fire department came to the Bishop family with their initial findings. The fire originated in the kitchen. That's how the fire marshal worded it, originated. They found the melted remains of a crock pot. Leslie's parents hugged each other. It was lucky the kids weren't in the house, they said to each other. This had been their mantra all week. It was lucky the kids weren't in the house when the fire started. The fire marshal nodded gravely, but he had more news. Besides the cause of the fire, the fire department had found something else inside the house. Something disturbing. Inside the home, the fire department had found the bodies of two people, a man and a woman. The couple had been found in the master bedroom, and they were found under the window lying next to each other, as if they had been asleep on a bed. The odd thing was, there was no remains of a bed beneath the bodies. Leslie's folks confirmed that their bed hadn't been beneath the window. Their bed, the only bed in the room, had been against the opposite wall. But there was something more, the fire marshal said. There was something missing from one of the bodies found. It was the woman, and an autopsy showed that it had been removed after the bodies had already been burned. And what the woman was missing was her hand. That's it for this episode of Hometown Paranormal. If you like this episode, please subscribe to my podcast and leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to get a hold of me, or if you'd like to have your hometown featured on Hometown Paranormal, you can send me a message on Instagram at hometown.paranormal or on Twitter at HTParanormal. I also want to invite you to enter a little contest that I'm hosting. Now this contest is for ages 17 years old and younger. So kids, listen up. If you listen to Hometown Paranormal and you want to try writing your own paranormal tale, now is your chance. Here are the rules. One, you must be 17 years old or younger. Two, all you have to do is what I do every episode. Write a story 
involving some sort of paranormal or strange encounter. That could be a ghost, a spirit guide, a fairy, an alien, a troll, a haunted house, a talking stream, anything out of the realm of quote-unquote normal. It's your story, so do your thing and have fun with it. The other criteria is that the setting of your story, the place where it happens, has to be an actual town. It can be any town, but it has to be a real town. So it can be where you live or where your grandma lives or a place where you visited on vacation, anywhere. Now the most important rule is that you have to have fun with this. So I can't stress this enough. I don't care about spelling or grammar. I care about a good story. So. Even if you don't think you're a great speller, write a story anyway. As long as I can read it, your story is in the contest. One last thing to keep in mind, my episodes don't go over 30 minutes. So make sure your story can be read in 30 minutes or less. Now to enter, you just need to email me your story. You can send it to hometown paranormal podcast at gmail.com hometown paranormal podcast at gmail.com and don't forget the word podcast because if it doesn't have podcast in the email it will go somewhere else hometown paranormal podcast at gmail.com so include your name and your age in the email I will be reading all the submissions blind, so I will not know who wrote which story until the very end, but I will need to know who to congratulate when I choose a winter, a winner. So make sure your name and your age is in the email. I will have somebody else opening my email for the month of February, so I won't know who you are, um, but I'll be able to read your stories. So you have until March 1st, 2023 to send me your story. That gives you all of February to think of a good story and write it down. Anyone age 17 or younger can enter, even if you've met me in real life. Only my own kids won't be allowed to enter, but anyone else can. So if you've met me in real life, don't worry about it. You can still enter the contest. Sometime in March, I will announce the winner, and the winner's story will be featured on an episode of Hometown Paranormal along with another prize that I'll announce later in February. So kids, please get to writing a strange or unusual paranormal story and send it to me. I can't wait to see what is going on in your guys' minds and all the strange and unusual things you guys are thinking about. So I'll put all of this in the show notes. So hopefully if you uh, don't have a second to write it down right now, you could always go back through the show notes and get this information. But please go ahead and write something down, enter the contest, send me something. I wish you luck. I can't wait to read your stories. And that ends today's episode. So thank you for listening. And as always, thanks for putting Hometown Paranormal on the map.